And so as always, in addition to welcoming those of you sitting in the audience today, there are history enthusiasts all over the world who watch and listen to the recordings of these programs online. Um, and actually, today, this lecture is being recorded by C-SPAN, and we're happy to have them here with us. Um, and our banner lectures are only possible because of the generous support of the Richmond Times-Dispatch and Virginia Historical Society members. So if you enjoy these programs and you're not a member, uh, please consider uh, joining us. Uh, it's easy to do at our website, www.vahistorical.org. And if you don't already follow us on Facebook, I'm sure you follow other people on Facebook. If you don't follow the Virginia Historical Society on Facebook, I'd like to encourage you to do so because then you'll be in the know about all of the amazing things that we're doing. And in fact, I think yesterday, Mr. Potato Head and Chewbacca were visiting the Historical Society in anticipation of our new exhibition, Toys from the 50s, 60s, and 70s, that opens later this month. Um, and you would have missed their visit if you weren't you know, following us on Facebook. Um, so now for today's program. In March 1921, Major John G. Thornell and his crew were detailed to Italy to procure a new experimental airship for the U.S. Army Air Service. Stationed at Langley Field in Hampton, the Roma never lived up to expectations despite being heralded as the future of military innovation. Tragically, it crashed on February 21st, 1922 in Norfolk, claiming the lives of most of the men aboard. Today's speaker will reveal details and never-before-published imagery of the forgotten tragedy of one of the last great airships and those who sacrificed for the promise of a new era in aviation. Nancy E. Shepard is a writer and historian of her native Hampton Roads, Virginia. Her main interest in is the history of Hampton Roads from 1890 to the present. And after publishing several short online local history pieces, she's devoted her research and writing over the last four years to telling the story of the U.S. Army Air Service dirigible Roma and her crew. So please join me in giving a warm VHS welcome to Nancy Shepard. Well, thank you for that warm introduction, and I'd like to thank the Virginia Historical Society for having me, and C-SPAN for coming out here and uh, taping today. Uh, it's very exciting. Um, as Andy said, uh, my name is Nancy E. Shepard. I'm an author from Hampton Roads, uh, and uh, this has been my, uh, my project for the last five years. To tell you a little bit about Roma, just to get started, this is a forgotten piece of our Virginia history, yet a very important one. It was the deadliest disaster of a U.S. hydrogen airship, and it's one that has long been forgotten, and it's been my honor to bring it back to the world and to bring it to you today. And my clicker. So I'm going to take you back to 1921. This was a time of innovation, of prosperity, of hope for a new future. Uh, we had just survived a period in World War I, the Spanish flu epidemic, and so needless to say, everyone wanted to leave behind all that, 
ugliness, I guess you could say, and move forward. Uh, they were looking for new in, uh, inventions, new ways to go about doing day-to-day -day life and making the world a proverbial smaller place. Um, this is a postcard from about that period from my hometown, Norfolk. Back during World War I, Germany proved the invaluable validity of these airships. They had these massive, rigid frame ships, which, while they committed limited damage, created a sense of psychological warfare. Unlike their heavier-than-air or airplane counterparts, they were less fragile. They could carry more cargo, more crew. They could go higher, faster, and they just seemed to be a more practical solution. To give you an idea of how fragile these heavier-than-air uh, airplanes were, the Army Air Service only had 2,200 serviceable planes out of 10,000 after our short period in World War I. So needless to say, instead of looking at that as, as a way to move forward, the United States desperately wanted to get in on the lighter-than-air or airship technology. The U.S. Navy was charged with the rigid ships. To give you an idea what a rigid ship would, would look like, it would be like the Hindenburg. These were ships that, had, that were massive. They were a thousand, sometimes larger, feet long. They had a skeletal structure inside the gas bag right here. And they were really based off of the um, Zeppelin Corporation in Germany. Not wanting to be outdone by the U.S. Navy, Brigadier General Billy Mitchell uh, petitioned the War Department to have a large ship for the Army. He wanted it for training purposes, but really to work on reconnaissance. After the U.S. Navy passed on a semi-rigid ship, and I'll tell you more about that just in a second, called Rama, which was a second-hand ship from Italy, the War Department approved the Army to go ahead and purchase it. So they gathered the best and the brightest that the Army Air Service had to offer in their lighter-than-air division, and they were to come together to go to Italy, inspect the ship, and bring it back to the United States. I'm going to introduce you to the eight men that were there that day. This is the commanding officer, uh, Major John G. Thornell, and his most unfortunate mustache. Uh, this is the second command, Captain Dale Mabry, which anyone who has ever been to Tampa might be familiar with his name. Uh, this is Lieutenant Walter J. Reed, not the same as the Reed that we think of, usually, and not at all related. And these are the crewmen. This is Master Sergeant Roger McNally. He was serving uh, for the Department of, in, of the Interior up in Alaska when we entered into World War I. And so he decided to walk all the way to Seward to enlist. So he was a bit older than the other men, but he was definitely the most trusted um, leading enlisted men they had to put on the ship. This is Master Sergeant uh, Harry Chapman. Master Sergeant Marion Jethro Bell, who was one of the first men in his county in Missouri to enlist to serve during World War I. This is Sergeant Virgil Hoffman of Eden Rapids, Michigan. And this is Sergeant Joseph Biedenbach, who was the only one of these men who didn't serve during World War I. And though he was young, he was definitely a very trusted and very gifted lighter-than-air engineer. Major John G. Thornell, he 
he was, he, sorry, he finished near the bottom of his class at West Point and went into the infantry. Well, during World War I, he found his niche, so to say, in lighter than air, and that's where he showed his most promise. And so he was a natural pick to put as commanding officer of this grand gem of the Army Air Service. This is Lieutenant Walter J. Reed. He, was, he had gotten out of the Army, and they called him, and they said, hey, we really want you to come and help us pick up this new airship. And he said, all right, maybe. So he called his girlfriend, Maria Blackiston of Hampton, and said, hey, do you want to get married? I'm going over to Italy. This would be a great opportunity for a honeymoon. <laughs> she said yes. <laughs> so they got married. Uh, the day before leaving for Italy, and uh, Captain Dale Mabry served as Reed's best man. They were best of friends, though they were very polar opposite in personality. Dale Mabry was a consummate bachelor, and he was known for being a ladies' man around town. Um, so they got married, and then they sailed with the other men over to Italy. This is Sar Sergeant Virgil Hoffman, again of Eden Rapids, Michigan. He was called into the air service after getting out after the war, and he said, I'll only go back if you send me back to Langley Field, because he was in love with this young woman, Stella. And they said, okay, and they whisked him back to Langley, and the two were soon engaged. Uh, this is her engagement ring right there. And they were young, they were in love, they were planning a wedding for the following year. To speak a little bit about Roma, she was built in 1919 by a man named Umberto Nobile. She was originally supposed to be used by the Italians for World War I, but when the war wrapped up before the ship was built, they had to find another purpose. So they decided they want to use her as a transatlantic vessel between Rome and Rio de Janeiro, as they were looking at airships as kind of taking the place of large ocean liners for transportation. However, that never came to be, and she was generally used just for sightseeing purposes. The Italians were very anxious to unload her. <laughs> now, when the Americans got there, the Italians only agreed to one inspection flight. Uh, and that day was a bit of a party. This is Umberto Nobile, one of the engineers. And on board that day was the Italian American ambassador to Italy, Robert Underwood Johnson. Also, Prince Vigo of Denmark was there and all of his regalia and his entourage. Uh, Maria Reed was there with her husband. The wheel of the ship was often left unattended. Anyone who wanted to fly it could. <laughs> and they uh, had alcohol and wine flowing freely. Keep in mind, this is during Prohibition. And they were serving elaborate three-course meals. And needless to say, I like to say it was more of a spectacle than inspection. This gentleman right here is Kenneth Roberts. He was a prominent journalist at the time on board. This is during that inspection flight. And he wrote that I had a prisoner of Zenda feel that day. So that night after stumbling off in a bit of a drunken stupor, oh, I got ahead of myself, I apologize. They didn't even notice that when the flight plan changed, they were originally supposed to fly over the caldera of Mount Vesuvius. They didn't even notice when the ship veered to the side because the ship couldn't get the lift from the hydrogen that they needed to get over the caldera. They were speaking about the dangers of hydrogen, but one of the men on board was like, well, 
I could light a cigar right here and the ship would be fine. Anyway, back to what I was saying a few moments ago, the Major Thornell stumbled off the ship, and like I said, a little bit of a drunken stupor, and he wrote back to his superiors, I am most impressed with the semi-rigid type of airship and believe it has great possibilities. Now, Roma was the marrying of that rigid technology we spoke about a little bit ago, and the blimp, which was a much smaller ship, did not have a skeletal uh, frame, so it was an experimental type of aircraft. This is a copy of one of the original uh, contracts to purchase Roma. The Italians originally asked for $475,000, but, re- but they readily agreed to a purchase price of $184,000. <laughs> so Major Thornell called his superior, well, wrote to his superiors and asked to fly Roma back to Langley. After all, she was supposed to be for transatlantic passage. And they wrote, they wrote back, said, no, pack her up, send her back. And he said, okay, well, this ship is a few years old. We need a new airbag, which is the bag on the outside of the airship. It was a few years old. It was made from a silk cotton blend that could only be produced in Italy and needed a six-month re- lead time to produce it. And the War Department's like, no, this won't be fine. And so they packed up Roma and sent her on her way back, or home to Langley. In the meantime, 1921 was the first time in the United States we start really witnessing the dangers of hydrogen in these airships. Most prominently was the R-38, which is pictured here, and this was a rigid airship. You can kind of see the outline of a skeletal frame inside there. The R-38 was built by the British on Zeppelin plans, German Zeppelin plans, for the United States Navy. We hadn't yet accepted it, and at this time, we had Navy sailors, Navy airmen over there, on board with British airmen. Over the Humber River, the ship lost structural integrity and essentially broke in half. The thing was, oxygen got into these gas bags, mixed with the hydrogen, and exploded. Only five of the 49 men on board that day survived. Lieutenant Clifford Tinker, who was a public affairs officer serving on the ground, accompanied the remains of his, of his uh, fellow seamen back, or sailors back, and he swore that no one would ever die in an airship because of hydrogen again. So Rama arrived to Langley on August of 1921, and Anyone who's ever been to my part of Hampton Roads knows that that is a wonderful time of year temperature-wise and humidity-wise. They unpacked her, and she, her gas bag was covered in holes, mildew, and one of the men described it as resembling lukewarm beeswax. So again, they asked the War Department, can we have a new bag? We need to put this to bed. We need a new one. This one won't last. And the War Department's like, patch it, it'll be fine. You go through the hangar log, and there are thousands of patches that they put on this bag. Needless to say, some of the men were starting to feel a little uncomfortable with this ship. In the meantime, we have more crewmen join the ship. This gentleman right here is Lieutenant Byron T. Burt, Jr., it's not, I'm not sure whether or not he was a lucky man to have on board, considering he survived three lighter-than-air disasters before this. 
but he was a very gifted engineer, and he really understood the way these ships function, the physics and whatnot, especially of this experimental craft that we had never touched before. And this is him standing with Captain Mabry. We also had several of these men, but in particular, I'm going to introduce you to Corporal Alberto Duke Flores. He was a young man who came here from Puerto Rico, and he was a very trusted, very gifted, very jovial man to have on board. Everyone loved him. Signs were posted outside of the hangar warning people don't smoke, don't light any lighters right here and right here. And men's shoes were checked for tacks and nails to avoid any sparks on the concrete because hydrogen was volatile, but they didn't want to tell anyone that. They had a great deal of trouble maintaining hydrogen purity inside the bag. What that meant was they needed to maintain a certain amount of hydrogen to oxygen ratio to make sure that the hydrogen would not become unstable. And like I said, they had a great deal of difficulties. Rama on the inside was uh, divided into 11 compartments in here. And the first compartment right here had particular trouble. So they kept patching her. They finally were able to get within regulation of the hydrogen. And she was finished. And a uh, scheduled flight was November, 20, November 15, 1921. Despite the hesitation inside the hangar, the world was starting to get to know Roma through newsreels, through newspapers, and everyone was excited. They were heralding her the grand eagle of the American air. So on the day of the flight, people gathered in. They estimate around 1,000 people came in from all around Hampton Roads, along with reporters, loved ones of the crew, just to see Roma go up for the first time. It was truly an exciting moment. And this is the day of that flight. Everyone was gathered in the field, holding their breath, waiting, would she lift? Would she flounder? What would happen? And you can see a great deal of people right there. Men were out on the scaffoldings for the engines. These engines were Italian made, and they tended to run oily. Roma lifted perfectly, which you'll see here in just a moment. And Major Thornell radioed down, how did we look? And from the ground, the radio men at Langley said back, magnificent. And a great cheer erupted throughout the ship. They were ready to fly Roma here for the first time. And the part that the engineers, just as a side note, didn't trust was this rudder. It was, they called it a box kite, and it was something different than anything they had used before. And it was rather bulky on the back. So this is her flying over Langley. You can see the hangar in the background. Major, or excuse me, Sergeant Jethro Bell, right here, had a great deal of trouble with his engine. As I said, these were made to run oily. They were made for southern Italian climate, not our variations here in Virginia. So it kept freezing in the November weather. He kept having to pour boiling water on top of it. And so the engineers were just not happy with their engines. 
About 11 a.m., an aluminum door broke off the hull and slammed into one of the propeller blades. The propeller blade shattered and tore holes in the bag. Knowing that this could be a catastrophe, Sergeant Lee Harris jumped into action. He gathered two other men, climbed up into the bag, and patched it until he and the other men passed out from inhaling the hydrogen. But they managed to save the ship. And all three men were safe. Despite the accident and the issues of the engine, this flight was hailed a success. The men in the meantime, the crewmen in particular, were very, very scared now of this ship. Marion Jethro Bell formed what was called the Graveyards Club, and these were men who were trying desperately to be transferred off, but these were the best and brightest they had. He would write to his friends and say, if the ship, the ship is going down one day and everyone's going to be killed. But some men were like, no, the ship is fine. We'll be good. In the meantime, Clifford Tinker, who was mentioned earlier as the public affairs officer, got out of the Navy and he started writing and talking to everyone who would listen. We need to use helium. It's a heavier gas, but it's safe. Finally, just to indulge him, then they agreed to fly the C-7, a smaller blimp, on test runs using helium from Norfolk to DC and back. The C-7 proved that helium not only had the advantage flight-wise, but it was also a fiscal advantage for the long term. She didn't expand or contract like hydrogen tended to do, and she had absolutely no loss of gas, which hydrogen tended to leak because it was so thin. Aerial Age Weekly, which was a popular journal at the time, even came out and said, summed up, it can be said that the use of helium as a gas in, for inhalation of airships has been demonstrated beyond a doubt. Yet quietly, the helium plant at Fort Worth, Texas was closed. Clifford Tinker went to Major Percy Van Nostrand, the uh, director of lighter than air development for the air service, and came up with a sum where it would have cost $14,000 to move enough helium from Fort Worth to Langley to fly Roma. Major Van Nostrand told Tinker, we don't have the money. We can't do it. Hydrogen's going to have to do. December 21st, 1921 was the day of the christening ceremony. It was a cold, windy day. Roma flew into Bowling Field in Washington, D.C. late on only three of six working engines. As you can see, she's shimmying back and forth. The reason why the other three engines had stopped was because of how oily they were. She kept freezing up, and they couldn't get them restarted. In fact, one of the working engines had to be restarted midair. And so needless to say, this was quite a sight to see her coming in. And it was a great deal of trouble to get her to the ground. And I don't know if you can see, but you will in a second, that there was something ironic that happened with the flag. Um, so at, the ceremony was cut short, uh, and they sent a skeleton crew, they planned to send a skeleton crew on board Roma back home. And here we see they're dropping ropes down to the ground for the grounds crew to attempt to pull her down. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt Jr. was there to give words. They had the ambassador from Italy there. They had Secretary Weeks of the War Department there to give words. And the um, Finn Rose, or Wainwright, who was the 
sponsor of the ship broke a bottle of liquid oxygen against the hull. So, yeah. Midway through the ceremony, Roma rolled onto its side and caused uh, some more damage. So they had to patch her up again before leaving. And ironically, one of the halyards broke and the flag was hanging upside down. Can't write fiction this well. So they, they sent Roma back to Langley that evening and she arrived on only one engine working. And so finally, the attention was diverted from the issues with the bag and hydrogen to the engines. They had to replace these. So they agreed to put the Liberty V12 engines on board. These were faster but lighter engines, but ones that the men were familiar with. And so they went out to Dayton, Ohio, and had these engines made. In the meantime, Major Thornell was up for orders, and he received orders to go up to DC. But, they said, but he said, please let me fly in Roma one more time as an observer, and the War Department agreed. Captain Mabry was promoted to commanding officer. Lieutenant Reed was promoted to captain and second in command. A new bag was ordered, finally, but again, it took a six-month lead time. So they said, Roma still will fly. We will not lose the money that we put into this ship. So a test flight for the new engines was scheduled for February 21st, 1922. In the meantime, the engineers from Dayton, Ohio came, civilians, and along with Walter McNair, a physicist from the Bureau of Standards. He wanted to test how fast she flew with these new engines. Up to this point, the fastest she had ever traveled was 54 miles per hour. The night before the flight on February 20th, 1922, a dance was held at the Officers Club at Langley. It was, uh, it was a great time to regale and be together, and it was agreed that some of the observers, uh, students at the field, excuse me, would go on board as observers, including majors uh, Waltzmeyer and Reardon. Stella Hoover was there with her fiance, Virgil Hoffman, dancing the night away and planning their wedding just a few months down the road. Captain Reed was not there that night because he was suffering from the flu, and his wife made him stay home. The next day, February 21st, 1922, was a cold and dreary day. They were uncertain whether or not they were going to actually go up that day. So after preparing the ship in the morning, Captain Mabry sent everyone off to get lunch. And Corporal Irby Hevron, a flying member of the crew, turned to one of his friends, a non-flying member, Nathan Carew, and said, if something happens to me, you take me home. It was supposed to be a joke, but... Um, at the last minute, Captain Mabry called everyone back to the hangar, and Captain Reed arrived against his wife's protests. She knew if the ship was going up, so was her husband. In fact, it was so last minute that the mascot dog of the ship was left behind the hangar. Upon pulling the ship out of the hangar that day, one of the grounds crew noticed a triangular silvery patch flying off the top and onto the ground in front of him. As the ship was rising, as we saw earlier, she was supposed to rise straight up and down. However, the nose up here in the front was pointing down. It was heavy. There must have been more oxygen than hydrogen at that point. So Captain Mabry orders everyone to the back of the ship. Throw everything you can back there. We need to gain horizontal equilibrium. 
Corporal Alberto Flores was right here in the crow's nest, sticking his head out, measuring the, how taunt the bag was. And eventually, they were able to gain the horizontal equilibrium they needed. Everyone breathed a sigh of relief. However, Master Sergeant Harry Chapman, who was in charge of monitoring the gauges of the hydrogen purity, noticed he had troubles in compartment one, which is right here, and compartment 11. Walter McNair commented how the ship was moving surprisingly fast. His tool clocked out at 75 miles per hour, and she was definitely moving at least that speed. Captain Reed and Lieutenant Burton noticed that their controls were moving surprisingly sensitive than they were used to. Major Thornell took this as a note of good luck and commented to Captain Mabry, these engines are the stuff. Over Old Point Comfort, Reed starts becoming overcome with his flu symptoms and asks Lieutenant Burt to take over for him. Lieutenant Burt agrees, and Captain Reed escapes to the passenger cabin. Going over the river between Old Point Comfort at Fort Monroe to the south side of Hampton Roads, Corporal Flores pokes his head out of the crow's nest right there and notices that the ship is losing pressure. It's soft. And even the slightest bit could cause the ship to lose structural integrity. And as we saw with the R-38, we don't want that to happen. He tries to climb down to the ship to get down to warn everyone down in the, in the cabins. He couldn't get past. It was pinched. The tunnel was impassable. He was stuck up there at the nose of the ship. In the meantime, Lieutenant Burt starts pulling his elevator control ropes, turning the wheel, and they were just moving freely in his hands. He lost control of the ship. He turns to Captain Mabry. The captain, she won't respond. Mabry ordered everyone to throw everything they could over the ship to make it lighter. They had to lighten the load. They wanted to get her to the Norfolk Country Club to save the ship. He ordered the engines cut, and only the center and aft engines were cut. For reasons we don't know, the forward engines were still running. It became very obvious by this point, because she was barreling so quickly to the ground, that it wasn't about saving the ship anymore. It was about saving themselves. On the ground at the Quartermaster Depot along the river, which is now Norfolk International Terminals, if you're familiar with it down there, Everyone was rushing to the, to the aid. They knew something was about to happen. They knew they had to cut off the electricity on the base of the telephone wires that ran through. At this point, everyone in the passenger cabin begins panicking. They're hugging each other, praying, crying. Lieutenant Riley, an observer on the ship, is so filled with panic and madness he climbs towards the door, and before anyone could stop him, he jumps. The last words anyone hears before the ship touches the ground is Captain Mabry calling out, My God, boys. Corporal Flores knew he had mere moments at the edge of at the tip of the ship to save himself, and he waited. And the moment the tip of the front of the ship touched the ground, he jumped and he ran and ran. He didn't stop till someone caught him and a tremendous explosion behind him. 
That rudder that we had saw earlier grazed a telephone wire, ignited the hydrogen inside the bag, which was already volatile, and the ship exploded. Anyone who hadn't gone out before the explosion didn't. Eyewitnesses on the ground recalled seeing vestiges in the flames screaming mercy, oh mercy, before disappearing. On a road nearby lay the body of Lieutenant Riley. The ship wasn't high enough for his parachute to fully open. The survivors were rushed to a nearby hospital. Maria Reed quickly got word about her husband's ship, and she insisted on being rushed over. She had to find him. Was he okay? She was taken to the public health hospital, and there she found him. She sat with her husband and other men that were there when a newspaper reporter wandered in. And when the men asked him, what about the other boys? Where are they? And this reporter had the unfortunate duty of telling him that they were the only ones to survive. Only 11 men out of 45 survived that day. Only 11. Back at the scene, it was obvious to those on the ground that this was a recovery effort, not a rescue. Men were being pulled from the wreckage, and anything that they could find on them, they pinned to them to help identify. Coins, rank insignias, name bracelets, anything. The last man to be pulled from the wreckage, right here, was still clutching a control wheel. Lieutenant Burt, who was thrown from the ship upon impact, was relatively unscathed. He returned to the scene, and this particular picture is particularly haunting. He couldn't believe that these were, his, these were his brothers. These were the men he served with and survived with in World War I. That he was just in the air moments before, and they were gone. How could this happen? The victims were taken to Rouse Funeral Home in Newport News for identification. Dr. Jesse Mabry, the older brother of Captain Mabry, met the men there. He wanted to help identify, but his purpose was he needed to find out where was his brother. Captain William Kepner, a non-flying member of the crew, also arrived. Again, these were his brothers. He would later say these were his brothers, his boon companions. And the images of that night stayed with him for the rest of his life. Stella Hoover waited patiently as she could at Langley Field for word of her fiance, Virgil. This was the man she was head over heels in love with and planning to spend the rest of her life with. Well into the night, the dead were identified. They included Major John G. Thornell, Sergeant Virgil Hoffman, Sergeant Jethro Bell, and the last man to be identified, the man holding the control wheel, was Captain Dale Mabry. A hero to the end, he never left his post. Captain William Kepner had the unfortunate duty of helping the bereaved families as they arrived to pick up the remains of their loved ones. One father asked him, are you sure it's my son? My son has a scar on his pelvis, did you see it? Captain William Kepner said to him, I, I assure you, sir, this is your son. And the father said, did you see the scar? Captain Kepner had to inform this father that his son's pelvis was missing. 
An inquiry was held under strict secrecy. And the men posed for photos for the newspaper, but were told they weren't allowed to speak to the newspapers or anyone about what happened. Here we see Corporal Flores and Sergeant Joe Biedenbach at the hospital. Two men, uh, Master Sergeant Harry Chapman and a civilian named Charles Dvorak, were in particularly tough condition. It was uncertain whether or not they would survive. The question was, what caused these deaths? It was apparent, the death certificates read of all but Riley, that they died in the fire. But what caused the fire? Student observer Clarence Welch, Lieutenant Clarence Welch, was asked, had there been a non-burning gas used that day, do you think the outcome would have been the same? And this is a direct quote from him. I am sure the ship would not have burned so quickly, but what a great number of men could have been saved and an attempt could have been made to save the others. This meant that what was behind their deaths was hydrogen. An elaborate memorial service was held in Newport News on February 24th, 1922. The Huntington Rifles arrived and they played Saul's Death March and they gave a procession for the men. Two bodies were chosen, that of Captain Mabry and Private Johnny e. Thompson to represent the 34 men that died that day. Private Thompson was chosen because his was the only body that went unclaimed. M people lined the streets, as you can see here, crying, hugging each other as, this, as if this were their own brother or husband or father or loved one. At the casino grounds, the mascot dog was on hand, and effigies were given to these men. They talked about putting up grand memorials, that this would never be forgotten. Roses were spread from the sky, flown by friends of the fallen. In the months that followed, debate raged. Should they end the lighter-than-air program altogether? Or should they continue using hydrogen? This was just an unfortunate accident. The short story is they agreed on a compromise. The lighter-than-air program would continue, but using helium. The, a congressional inquiry was held several years later to look into Roma's disaster and subsequent disasters of other larger ships um, because of crashing uh, for other reasons. It came to light that in the end of the fiscal year of 1922, which back then was June of 1922, the War Department returned a surplus to the Treasury of $6.5 million. Of that, $1.3 million was supposed to be used for transportation of supplies for the United States Army Air Service which they could have used for helium. As we spoke about earlier, uh, Lieutenant Tinker came up with a sum of only $14,000, money they readily had on hand to transport helium that they also had on hand. Yet they negligently chose not to do it at a cost of approximately $412 per life lost that day. This was an embarrassment to the government. The story was hidden and buried with her victims.
As for the survivors, Master Sergeant Harry Chapman probably suffered the worst. He was the only one who was commendated for his heroism that day as he had dove back into the fire three times in an attempt to save his shipmates. In 1940, he died uh, due to damage on his lungs from what he experienced that day in 1922. He was the last victim of Roma. Charles Dvorak, who also was the one that was in the hospital the longest, suffered what, what would be classified today as post-traumatic stress disorder. The last survivor, uh, Master Sergeant Alberto Flores, passed away in 1988. He would often regale loved ones with stories of his time on lighter-than-air ships and always go up to the VFW and talk about them. But he never again flew on one after Roma. There was no grand memorial ever placed for the men. When the Quartermaster Depot was shut down and the Norfolk International Terminals went into place, the men pulled their money together and put together this small limestone uh, monument. Uh, it is currently locked behind a gate on private property. When I visited it in 2014, I had to have an armed escort to go see it. Completely inaccessible from the public, and it's not in the best of condition. However, this does have sort of a happy ending, as of recently. Throughout this process of researching Roma, I have had the privilege of getting to know some of the loved ones and family members of the crew of Roma. We have been able to share stories. We have been able to get to know each other and get to know those on board that day. As a result, we've been able to pull the funding together to install a historic highway marker, and our application is currently with the Virginia Department of Historic Resources. And just last night, I was told by the city of Norfolk that they will write a letter to approve a location and maintenance of it. So that has been a wonderful ending for these men that never received any sort of public recognition for their service and sacrifice that day. If you ever have the honor of going to Langley, what is now Joint Base Langley Eustis, they have one section, so-called the LTA section, to honor Roma. Several of the streets are named for Roma and her crew. The hangar is no longer there, but you can see the outline in a grassy field. So their memory does live on in the, arm, in the air service today. It has been my honor over the now five years I've been working on Roma to breathe life back into their story and be able to bring their lives to you and no longer let their sacrifices be in vain. Thank you. All right, questions? Yes, an interesting uh, talk about a little-known event. Uh, the Roma was clearly, clearly uh, star-crossed. You talked about it flying up to 54 miles an hour. How high could these 
these airships go and how did one ever land? That is an absolutely excellent series of questions. It was uh, how high could they go and how did they land? The ships, the Zeppelin ships could travel several thousand feet in the air, which is what made them relatively impenetrable during World War I. Uh, Roma itself could fly about a thousand feet. On the day of the crash, she was only about 700 feet in the air. Uh, the way they came down is they had a series of gauges inside the ship where they would release hydrogen and slowly let oxygen in at safe levels. And because the oxygen's heavier than the hydrogen, she would slowly come to the ground. That alone wouldn't totally do it, because obviously they need to keep hydrogen in the ship. So when they got closer, they would either drop ballast, uh, which they had sand and water on board, or they would drop ropes for the ground crew, basically to pull her down. So. Other questions? Right there in the middle, Andy. You mentioned that the Army, after this disaster, went from hydrogen to helium. Mm -hmm. And yet, I believe 15 years later, when the Hindenburg crashed, that was still hydrogen. Do you have a, a theory as to why um, they, first of all, the Germans kept using hydrogen and why we allowed hydrogen to be used on flights coming into this country? That is an excellent question. The question is, why were the Germans still using hydrogen, and why did we allow it? The Germans basically uh, maintained their ships a lot better than we did, and so they didn't have the same leaking problems that we had, so they didn't have nearly as many accidents or issues that we did. Um, so you are absolutely correct in the hydrogen, um, and because it was a German ship coming into the United States, they allowed it, but we didn't allow it on any of our ships. Um, but again, it came back to they just had better maintenance than we did. Oh. I had heard a story that doesn't apply to the Roma, but in that era, there was an airship apparently by the name of Shenandoah that disappeared without a trace out in Ohio, and they never were able to find the remains of it. Did you find anything about that in your research? Shenandoah is kind of an interesting tie to Roma, actually, because uh, Captain Reed, who was second commander of Roma, was instrumental in the construction of Shenandoah. But yes, she was one of those big disasters that happened several years after Roma that made the congressional inquiry come to light about what should we do about these lighter-than-air programs. We need to develop the heavier-than-air plane technology because this is just not a practical solution anymore. So a little bit, but not terribly much. You mentioned that you needed an armed guard to visit the memorial. Can you say more about that? Yes. Um, I was able to contact Virginia Port Authority, um, who is in charge of the policing of Norfolk International Terminals. Um, the monument itself is on the grounds of what's called the Cromley House, which sits directly adjacent to the terminals down on uh, Hampton Boulevard and Terminal Boulevard. And so I contacted the Port Authority directly, explained I'm a historian, I'm doing research about the subject, I would love to come in and photograph the, the stone, um, do any sort of you know, monument rubbings or anything on it. And so I met with my escort and I was given a limited time to go down there. Um, and I don't, uh, I'm not endorsing this, but there was one day that uh, I was down there last year and one of the uh, family members of one of the survivors was with me visiting. 
and the gate just happened to be open. And so we were able to sneak back there very clandestinely and see it. But I, I do not endorse this. So, um, but basically, if you want to see it right now, that's what you have to do. But fortunately, uh, we're in very, very infantile stages of discussing having the monument moved somewhere more public. So, any other questions? Yes. Yes, in regards to your your uh, situation with the Germans having only hydrogen, my understanding is they didn't get helium because we wouldn't sell it to them. Bingo. <laughs> That is very true. We were uh, a bit stingy with our helium um, to the point the Canadians basically had more helium available. And after Roma, they said, we would have shared your, our helium with you because, you know, Canadians are so nice. Um, and so because of the uh, ongoing tensions after World War I, uh, we withheld our helium, even though we had a very uh, tenuous relationship with them up until we entered World War II. So yeah, we were holding on to it as part of a, the isolationist thing that we were doing at the time. Uh, a second point I would just uh, mention, these airships were so large, the Akron, the Macon, mm -hmm. they carried aircraft mm -hmm. inside and had very daring pilots, and the aircraft would be lowered on a hook. The engines would be started, and the the hook would be released and the pilots would fly off mm -hmm. and uh, to defend the airship and then they would be recovered by, a, they had a ring on top of the aircraft mm -hmm. and the pilots would fly up and be hooked on mm -hmm. to, the, uh, to the hook and hauled back up inside these uh, gigantic uh, uh, airships. It was an amazing technology. It really is. And there was actually an admiral back in the early 20s in the Navy who said that these are going to replace aircraft carriers someday. These are the way of the future. And it's, it's absolutely amazing, like you said, that I mean, these men were daredevils. They were acrobats, fearless, um, that they were able just to climb down thousand some odd feet up in the air into this cockpit and fly these very fragile planes and then try to hook it back on. Um, these, the Zeppelins themselves, as if you've seen any of the interior shops of the Hindenburg, they looked similar to like, the inside of a Navy ship today, or they looked like a cruise liner for, for civilian passengers. Uh, these were the way of the future. And the way it comes full circle is today we have uh, Lockheed Martin has a hybrid airship, similar uh, semi-rigid technology. Uh, that they're doing that can transport very large pieces of equipment into war zones. And it's more practical, it's cheaper, and so that's the way we're coming back to airships again in this day and age. So thank you. Any questions? Did I hear you say that in the, in the beginning of your lecture that the military considered the rigid ships faster than the uh, heavier-than-air aircraft? Yes, they were significantly faster. Um, they ran with uh, several stronger engines. Um, they could, and the big point was they could go further and higher and carry more people. Um, I don't know if I mentioned the statistics. I think I did. Yeah, we, the, the other, the lighter than the heavier than aircraft then were just so fragile that it just didn't seem like a practical solution for the purposes of transportation of supplies and men and whatnot to investigate making that a better option. They could go a bit faster, but it was mo more so for the transportation of goods, and they can go higher, so it was a great reconnaissance situation. Thank you. 
it appears that three of the men in the picture up here mm -hmm. have parachutes on. Yes. Did all the men, all the people, all the soldiers in the in the airship, were they required to wear parachutes? That is an excellent question. Were they required to wear parachutes? It was kind of funny because they always had ill-fitting parachutes, and they said that had it been a Navy ship, they would have had good-fitting parachutes. But it was more so of a comfort mechanism because Roma never flew high enough for the parachute to open fully, as we found out with Lieutenant Riley. And uh, the engineers who went out on the scaffoldings to work on the engines, they were not allowed to wear parachutes because had the parachute opened midair and got caught in the engine, that could be a catastrophe. So while they were wearing parachutes, they were just really for psychological comfort in the end. And I, I think you indicated earlier that Umberto Nobile was the engineer. Yes. Did he ever comment afterwards on what he thought the cause of the crash was? That is a great question. Umberto Nobile is kind of an interesting character. Um, he said basically his feeling was that it was going too fast and too low, which was relatively correct because it was going so fast and so low, basically the control cables inside snapped and they lost control of it. And because of the air differentiation on the inside, it was just a cluster of bad situations happening. Umberto Nobile went on to design two more ships uh, sister ships of Roma. The Norge was the first uh, air sh aircraft to ever fly over the North Pole. So Umberto Nobile got a bit cocky, and he built the Italia. And he said, I'm not going, only going to fly over the North Pole, I'm going to land on it in my airship. Well, they get close to the North Pole, and the bottom of the ship splits from the top. The men in the top go flying away, never to be seen again. The ones, the rest of them land on the ground, and were eventually rescued. There's a Russian film with Sean Connery called Red Tent that if you ever find it, check it out, about this situation. So the uh, regime in uh, late 1920s, Italy, were not very happy by this, and they kicked him out, sent him to the Soviet Union. Well, he had a few issues with airships in the Soviet Union, so the Soviets kicked him out. And then we got him. And then he went on and just basically taught lighter-than-air engineering after that, but he was very um, married to this semi-rigid technology, though it continued to be very experimental and didn't exactly work out very well in the end. So thank you. Um, any other questions? Um, and I want to share something with you really quick that I was uh, loaned to share with everyone by a loved one. And Emery, can I have you? And we have my beautiful daughter, Emery. So everyone clap for her. As we said earlier, Master Sergeant uh, Alberto Duflores was the last survivor. And when he passed away in 1988, he was buried in Belleville, Illinois. And his uh, surrogate niece, Judy Loudon, um, shared with me his burial flag from his casket to share with all of you to kind of bring him together with the, with the rest of us. So. I would like to thank you all again for having me today, and I look forward to speaking to you all up there. <laughs>